Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 0081 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through the wait this evening, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know, Radio City Docklands is on the home of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I pay my respects to any mob that uh, might be living on other traditional lands, such as uh, Butterong, Tanarong, Wadarong, Waveroo, Yorta Yorta, Wamba Wamba, Kunijamara, Ganakernai. You're all welcome, and um, I hope you enjoy the show this evening. You know how I was talking about um, moving through the platitude, platitude stage at the start of last week's show? You know, the stage where First Nations culture is celebrated only a couple of times a year with a morning tea, usually organised by Aboriginal staff, and we get sweeping but ultimately meaningless statements from our political leaders on things like reconciliation and closing the gap. I optimistically declared that we were almost through that stage and ready to have uh, more nuanced, hard conversations about the impacts of colonisation on First Nations people and communities. So after the show, I, I duffed on my overcoat, donned on my Stetson, walked out of Studio A, Radio City Docklands, lit up a Cuban and wandered off into the night with a smug assuredness that during NAIDOC week 2020, we were just about to turn the corner and walk down Real Talk Street. So I woke up the next morning, reeling a bit as per usual from the after-show party that occurs every Tuesday night, to find that uh, the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, was calling for one word to be changed in the national anthem to make it more inclusive. I thought, great, it's about time we uh, got rid of Gert. It's been a divisive word for too long and uh, has no place in our national song. Then after I uh, wiped the sleep away from my eyes, I realised it wasn't good she was trying to change. The, the Premier was actually advocating for young and free to be changed to one and free. And sure enough, uh, this news-grabbing but ultimately meaningless gesture dominated the news headlines for about 48 hours during NAIDOC week. Another thing happened that same day during NAIDOC week and that was the three Aboriginal representatives in the Australian Senate, Labor's Pat Dobson and Melindry McCarthy, along with Greens' Senator Lydia Thorpe, put forward a motion to have the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags in the Senate chamber displayed during NAIDOC week, a small but significant gesture. And, of course, the government sided with One Nation to vote down that motion. It garnered basically no media coverage and so no questions were asked. So my point is, is that we're having a long way, we've got a long way to go before we get through this platitude stage that we are now currently in to further embolden our national conversation around these matters. So when a non-Aboriginal leader makes a meaningless suggestion in relation to our national anthem, it becomes a major talking point for, for the nation's media, for the country's media. But when our Aboriginal leaders put forward a small gesture in our parliament is rejected outright and there is no conversation as to why that might be the case. So instead of talking about why the government is legislating a voice to government and not parliament and why it is not actually enshrining a voice in the constitution, 
Um, that's something that is glossed over and there is no conversation about it. And if there's a word that needs to be changed in the national anthem, it should be free. Because if you wanted to make it truly representative of First Nations people, you must understand that we are by no means free. We are the most incarcerated people on the planet. The national anthem doesn't reflect that, of course. So we're seemingly unwilling to have a conversation about things that matter. And that's where tonight's two guests come into it, thankfully. Shortly, I'll be joined by Family Matters co-chair Sue Ann Hunter. Uh, Family Matters yesterday released a report on the alarming rates in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are being taken away from their families and their culture. So we'll talk to Sue Ann about that and what could be done to address this crazy disparity. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by uh, Lisa Nice, CEO of the Diversity Council of Australia. A report uh, was released yesterday as well based on a survey of over 1,000 Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander workers across Australia that reveals some shocking realities about experiences of racism, the lack of cultural safety and identity strain experienced by Indigenous people across Australian workplaces. So that's uh, hopefully uh, uh, an interesting show for you. If we want to actually fix the national anthem, this is this is my suggestion. We get uh, Paul Kelly, Uncle Kev Carmody, uh, the Count Paul Grabowski, Deborah Cheatham, and, Ab- and uh, Alice Skye. Let's let's put Alice in there. We put them in the room with uh, food and water and light, preferably natural, and say, "You're not coming out of that room until you've got us a new national anthem." And I think that's a very simple and very easy way to fix the whole problem. Um, you're listening to The Mission. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Uh, now, most of you would be familiar with uh, the Stolen Generations, of course. There's been a deep national conversation about that for a long time now. They were, of course, the generations of children, Aboriginal children, that were taken away from their parents by state and federal authorities, as well as churches under various acts of parliament. It was systemic, it was systematic, and it was a form of cultural genocide. So it's alarming that here in 2020, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children represent 30% of the total population of all children that have been removed from their parents. That's a staggering 20,077 children. Uh, we, we represent 37%, but we only represent 6% of the total child population in Australia. So Family Matters, um, Strong Communities, Strong Culture, Stronger Children, is Australia's national campaign to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people grow up safe and cared for in family, community and culture. Yesterday, Family Matters released a report that highlights the disproportionate rate in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are removed from their families. And so on the line to talk with us now about the report's findings is co-chair of uh, Family Matters, Sue Ann Hunter. Sue Ann is a proud Wurundjeri Nguri Ilum Wurrung woman. And with a background in social work and trauma therapy, Sue Ann led practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care, Care Agency and continues to work at a national level to advocate for greater cultural understanding and healing for our children and our families. I'm very grateful to have Sue Ann on the line now. Sue Ann, welcome to the mission. Just getting the word out and starting the conversations. Thank you very much. Absolutely. No, 
Absolute pleasure. Um, just letting listeners know that um, I'm doing the old trick of actually holding the mobile phone up to the, uh, the the microphone because we had problems with Skype. So um, hopefully this will run smoothly. But um, again, thank you so much. Now, the first question, it's an obvious question, Sue Ann, is why are Aboriginal children being taken away from their families at such alarming rates? Um, so I guess the... Um there's a lot of issues um, that you need to consider, but I guess the main ones uh, or the drivers that really contribute to entering um, or encountering child protection are intergenerational trauma, you know, from the past policies and mm. practices, and you just mentioned um, stolen generation. There's the sort of the individual and collective experiences of trauma, so systemic racism, poverty, um, access to safe and stable housing, family violence, drug and alcohol issues and mental health issues. So they're our main drivers that, you know, sort of uh, why our people are, um, you know, touching the child protection system. I think um, you, you, you touched on uh, intergenerational trauma there. Um, I think that's a, that's a discussion that still needs to be had. I, I mean, I think the audience of this show understand what intergenerational trauma is. Um, yeah. But, you know, you've got you know, lived experience and, and professional practice in, in the area of intergenerational trauma. Um, can you explain the impact in intergenerational trauma continues to have on families today? Just so, just so we're very clear about that concept and, yeah. and that idea. So intergenerational trauma is when trauma isn't healed in one generation and then it's unconsciously passed on to the next generation. Sometimes you don't know what that trauma, like you can't see it. Um, so when one one sort of um, generation is not healed, it's passed on to the next, and it just keeps getting passed on until you know it, it's healed. A really good example, I guess, and um, is one from the stolen generation, and that's the one that's the fear of um, having your children removed. Now, because it's happened to such a you know it's happened to most of our population have been touched by it. It's a trauma that's been passed down to all of our people. Um, so the fear of um, having your child removed, even though you might know there's no chance you're doing well, everything's going well, you still have this underlying sense, someone may take my child because I'm Aboriginal. So that's just been passed down through the generations. Does that make sense? Was that a No, ab absolutely. That's a, that's a classic example, is that, that fear of um, authority, fear of government intervention or any other sort of organisational intervention doesn't doesn't leave families, doesn't leave people. And I think it goes to, you know, if you want to go further and, and take the intergenerational trauma um, uh, idea further, it, it impacts on the way that we deal with government systems full stop. You know, so many yeah. Aboriginal people had negative um, interactions with the education system, for instance, and with, with the, the, the healthcare system and the hospital system. Totally, yeah. And it's that authority figure that has overshadowed us for so many years that it becomes um, a, a bit, bit ingrained. What are they going to do? What do they want? If I'm a mother, will I be assessed how I'm parenting? So when I go into public, I need to be extra careful and you know, extra good and my house always needs to keep clean and my kids need to look clean and, you know, there's all this other stuff that just, um, these pressures, these other pressures that, you know, come up. Um, you know, and after a few generations, um, and Judy Atkinson, and Judy Atkinson's done some work, 
it actually starts to play out in family violence. And so we see that it's quite prevalent at the moment, I guess, you know, we've just had the family violence inquiry and things like that. So, um, you know, we've got, we've got um, there's a thing called, whether people believe it or not, unborn notifications. So you can be notified before your child is born. And that may be because of it, because previously at some point you've had a history with child protection. It could be that simple. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the cards the cards are so often stacked against people from the very, very, very outset. Um, I was talking with uh, Justin Muhammad last week, uh, the the Commissioner for uh, Aboriginal um, Young People. Um, I think is kind of half his title, and he was um, he wrote an article for uh, for croaky.org, and he was talking about the 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 overrepresentation of Aboriginal kids in in remand now and. Um, and we know that kids being taken taken from their families and put in um, other settings away from their families and their culture is often a gateway to um, remand and uh, detention yeah. centres. Yeah, it definitely is. So one of the things when we remove a child from their family um, and they're not ta- not placed within the Aboriginal child placement principle, and they're placed with a non-Aboriginal family, you're actually taking them away from their, not just their family, their community, their culture, all those things that are protective. Now, if you're young enough and you grow up in out-of-home care with a non-Aboriginal person, how do you learn your identity? How do you learn your culture? How do you form a really good sense of self and self-esteem? Well, actually, you can't because you know you're othered because you know you're Aboriginal, but you don't actually know what that means. Um, So you don't have this full sense of self. So you're really angry. You don't know what's going on. And you have, um, you know, you've got intergenerational trauma. um, And you're stuck in this system that's working against you. Um, You know, and one of the things that the system's really, really bad at is getting trauma therapy or getting, um, you know, a really good, um, I guess, combating a way of dealing with trauma that is culturally healing. So we're not good at healing. So what will happen is kids will stay in the system and their trauma just grows because all this stuff happens to them and we've all heard those stories. Um, And then they end up in the juvenile justice system. They don't belong. They feel like they don't belong anywhere and I've heard that so, um, so many times. Um, You know, once you're in a a child protection system, you know, there's things like, Um, low educational um, attainment, um, you know, and then if you look at the um, the adult prisons, um, there's two in three prisoners has not studied past year 10. So education is also important. So if you go into juvenile justice and you're not getting an education, if you're not getting, if you're at a school, and look, this is something a child said to me, I guess, being in practice for so long. Mm -hmm. A young girl said to me, um, she goes, you know what, uh, I don't like school. And I said, well, what is it about school? She said, I'm not the same. And I said, well, what's not the same? And she said, well, they tease me because I'm Aboriginal. They tease me because of the colour of my skin. I don't read and write very well. And you know what? I can't have people over because I live in a resi unit. And so that, like, that's the stuff that hits you hard. So she didn't want to attend school. And our kids start school behind anyway, let alone it's being in a in a situation where you're not in your family, where you're in out of home care, you know. 
Yeah, it's um, it's just a, a snowballing effect, and you and you actually say in the report that without urgent action, the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out of home care is projected to double by by twenty twenty nine, and that's that's um, yeah. something that we should all be worried about because that is destruction of culture before our very eyes. Yeah, well, exactly. How do we pass down the cultural inheritance that our kids have a right to if they're not with their communities and, and families? And, you know, we've known that the figures are rising for, for quite some time. And every year with this report, previously it's said we're at a crisis point, we're at a crisis point. We're, and, and I don't know, I don't even want to say we're at a crisis point anymore because it's so repetitive. We just need action. We need people to talk about it. It's not a great subject. You want to talk about it at the dinner table or, you know, having a beer with your mates or whatever it may be, but we need to talk about it because this is real. And every single, when you talk about those statistics, every single one of those numbers is a child. Yeah. Yep. And we seem to forget that when we talk about reports. That if we, if we keep saying it's a crisis point, we've got to do this, that's another night a child's in out-of-home care or that's another night something's happening with this child. It's another night child's disconnected from community, country and culture. And we know, so, we, we know, we know for like a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a matter of weeks can fundamentally change their life and, and, and change the path that they are on. So being in places like uh, remand or youth detention can have a permanent and lasting impact. Well, yeah, it, it, yeah, it can and it does. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's seen as a bit of a badge of honour. And mm. that's not that's not what um, what we want. And, you know, yeah, and just for my, like, 20 years of experience of practice, going in and, and visiting these kids, because some of them are so traumatised, they go, I don't want to come out because I don't know what I'm going out to. And at least here I've got a routine. I get fed and I know what's going to happen to me. And I'm not, you know, and that's sad at, at 13, say 13. Um, and that's not what we want. What we want is we want to invest in Aboriginal community-controlled organisations that have a say in how we treat our kids. They want decision-makings around out-of-home care. Plus, we need family support services. So we can't just treat the kids and think that's okay. We need to support the family as a whole because that's our community, right? Yep. We love our... Yeah, we all work together as, as one mob. So we need investment in family support services because too much dollars is going into, sorry, bad English there, too much, too much money is going into um, the child protection system and not enough in the family support. I'm speaking with Sue Ann Hunter, who's the co-chair of uh, Family Matters, and they just released a report on to the into the crisis that um, is affecting Aboriginal children being overrepresented in uh, out-of-home care at the moment. Now, you list in the report, Sue Ann, um, 10 solutions that could resolve this crisis. Um, we can't go through them all now, but let's talk about one. And, and one of the solutions that you've suggested in the report is establish and support independent and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family-led decision-making models in every state and territory for all families all significant um, child protection and um, decision-making points. Um, can you just talk us through what that looks like? So the um, so at the moment, that program, the um, I'll just say AFLDM because it's easier to say, sure. uh, in Queensland and uh, also in Victoria. And what they do is they bring the family together in um, sort of a decision-making style and bring them around the table and it's facilitated about... What are the outcomes we want? 
who is able to, particularly if the child's in care, who's able to care for this child while mum or dad or whoever's got the child can can go and um, receive the assistance that they need. Um, and so decisions are made early on because they need to be had within a certain amount of time. Um, and then the family's sort of leading that decision-making. And let me tell you, our families are harder on each other oh, yeah. than probably child protection will ever be. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah, and they know, you know, if you get those right people around the table and, that you know, they take a while to set up, but it, it's worth it because we're making we're making decisions about our kids and we're making sure they're safe. We're not just going to say they need to go home. We're going to make sure in that future that they're, that they're safe. Now, the difference between the Queensland one and the Victorian one is the Victorian one also has... Um, child protection as part of it, as co-convenor with an Aboriginal agency. Um, and and the, But the one in Queensland is ran by Aboriginal organisations fully. Um, so I, they I, get I, a bit more of a say. And I guess, I guess Sue Ann, that what that model does, it, it makes us accountable to each other and not some sort of invisible government agency that um, that uh, we've had previously bad experience with. And, and that sort of cultural and peer pressure is something that is far more powerful than the, than the invisible hand of any government agency in terms of correcting some of these matters in our communities. Yeah, exactly. So, that, and that's what we talk about. Like, um, we want to lead the way. We know and we know the programs that work and we don't, we're not just saying, like, give us the money, you know, we need money. What we're saying is let us be part of decision-making, policy-making, let us right across the board. We know the programs that work for our mob and we know that, like you just said, we know that the AFLGMs work because we we are harsher on each other about our children than anybody. Um, and we want to lead the way in making sure we reduce the rate of children coming into care. Well, if you want to find out more and read the report, its recommendations, its methodology, just go to familymatters.org.au and, um, you know, educate yourself on some of these issues. Like I said at the top of the program, we're talking about things in the Aboriginal and Strait Islander affairs space that don't actually matter this much. Um, this matters. This is something that we need to fix. Otherwise, we're going to have another generation uh, consigned to disadvantage. And so just go to familymatters.org.au and avail yourself of the report. And remember that we live in a democracy. So speak to um, your, your representatives, speak to uh, people in your family. Let's change the national conversation and chart a new course around some of this stuff. Um, Sue Ann, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, we'll get you back on the show um, in due course to uh, give us updates and see how things are tracking. But again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us and, and getting our, our voice out there and um, getting people to start understanding. So thank you so much. No worries. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, if there are any mob um, out there listening to this episode of The Mission, gather around the radio because the next segment might resonate strongly with you. Yesterday, a, um, a, a new report from the Janbana Institute of Indigenous Education and Research and, and the Research and Diversity Council of Australia, uh, they launched a report that is speaking the truth to Ab Australian employers about the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff. In short, the report, Gary Yala, which means speak the truth in uh, 
the, the mighty Wiradjuri language, reveals the Indigenous employees continue to experience significant workplace racism and exclusion, exclusion and that racism is impacting well-being and job satisfaction. Now, as someone who has dabbed in the occasional workplace over the years, these findings come as no surprise, but it is great to have issues around workplace culture documented and on the record so we can have a conversation about it. And that's what we're about to do with our next guest. Uh, Lisa Anise has been the Chief Executive Officer of the Diversity Council of Australia since June 2014. And in this role, she leads debate on diversity and inclusion in the public arena and as a result appears regularly on the ABC's The Drum, which I've seen uh, her on a couple of times, and in the wider Australian media. She has a long career in the diversity inclusion space across corporate, government and non-for-profit and she's on the line now to talk us through the report's findings. Lisa, welcome to the mission. Thank you for having me. How did the report come about? And uh, give us an overview of the uh, the methodology used to, to put the report together. Well, we were approached by the UTS Jambana Institute um, because they wanted to examine this issue and we've got a good relationship with them and we're research experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we partnered together initially to get an understanding of what the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples was um, in Australian workplaces across the whole geography of the country and across every part of the economy. Um, In terms of the methodology, we administered a survey, but we were really overwhelmed with the response. Um, We received over over 1,000 responses from people, again, across Australia, um, that were really statistically significant across a range of indicators because we know what the questions are to ask when we're measuring workplace inclusion and exclusion. Yeah, so you you interviewed 1,033 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers and one of the uh, the major findings you found, and it's a startling uh, finding, is that 20%, 28% um, of uh, people that responded to the survey felt culturally unsafe in workplaces. Was this a was this a surprise to you when, when you read that statistic? Look, I've been working in this space for a really long time, so for me personally, it wasn't a huge surprise. I mean, maybe the scale of it was pretty significant because if you add to that the fact that 68% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experience some level of racism, I mean, that is an overwhelming majority of people who are experiencing hostility in the workplace. So the scale of it was really significant and very important to be documented, as you said in your opening comments. Um, But I think what it reveals to me is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. Yeah, I, I think um, another really um, insightful finding that the, the report um, has has come up with, and I don't think people actually realise what a toll this sort of thing takes, but 44% reported that um, they heard racial slurs sometimes or often or a lot of the time. Um, being in an environment where there may not be racial slurs directed at you um, directly, um, but nevertheless you overhear those racial slurs, has an impact on not only the person's well-being but on on their performance in the role. Oh, absolutely. Look, I want to make it really clear to Australian employers, that's my audience, essentially, Australian employers, that they are the people I want to influence. This is a big deal. Racism 
is not just, um, you know, the outright exclusion of someone from the employment market or not giving someone a promotion. It is the day-to-day, um, everyday language that happens. It's the undermining. It's the comments. It's even the benevolent racism where people were, you know, surprised that an Indigenous person was educated or they congratulated them for being articulate or they said to yeah. someone, oh, you're too pretty. Yeah, so all of those things, they are all part of the bucket of racism. Racism is a, a pot that over time diminishes the dignity of the individual experience and it doesn't matter if it's intended or not. You might be thinking or paying someone a compliment um, but it's how that behaviour is received. That's what matters. I mean, that's certainly how we manage things like sexism in the workplace. We always talk about the impact of the behaviour. We never talk about the intention of the perpetrator. It's not good enough to say, I didn't mean any harm. Um, it's how that behaviour is received and the impact it has on an individual. And we absolutely need to put this front and centre of the thinking of employers who more and more are engaging with the Indigenous community and more and more are doing things like getting their wraps. Um, those things aren't just, you know, pages, empty mm. pages. They are real documents and, and they have real impact. I think the the, um, the the example you cited there, Lisa, about, um, gee, um, he's really articulate or she's really articulate <laughs> is something that would um, resonate very strongly with um, any mob that are out there listening tonight because that's... Um, that's such a loaded um, compliment when you when you when you think about it. Um, you go on. Absolutely. I mean, we had one comment from someone, and this for me, we actually picked it up and put it in the report. When this person said, um, you know, they were hesitant about revealing their identity in their workplace because they knew as soon as they did that whatever they did, whether it be good or bad, would be linked directly to their indigenous identity, their Aboriginality. And that wouldn't happen to any other individual, unless, of course, you're from a minority, cultural minority group. Um, but but they, will, they knew that. They had enough experience to know that that's what would happen. Now, one of the things I like about the, um, about the report is that you go to some lengths to describe the difference between institutional racism and interpersonal racism. Do you want to just give us a quick definition of what institutional racism is and what interpersonal racism is? Yes, well, institutional racism are those formal processes, procedures, they could be policies um, that work to actively exclude an individual or a group or work to not give them equal access to opportunity. Um, they're the easy things to fix. The other, because they're about policy and they're about just having the willpower to change rules. Um, the interpersonal racism, that's when it's about comments, it's looks, it's exclusion, it's being glossed over without being given any real feedback. It's, um, you know, all of that, um, sometimes even benevolent kind of comments which have a negative impact on people. That's the harder thing to kind of address because it's, it's really about the casual, everyday comments that people make. Now, on top of all this, the, the, the report also discovered that um, in terms of uh, current workplace supports that are in, supposedly in place to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff through some of these matters, you found that um, only one in three had the workplace support required to um, address issues around racism when, when a staff member um, experienced racism. Yes, 
Yeah, and that was a real surprise to us because the fact that um, only one in three people could identify that their workplace had an, an actual policy that identified racism and the complaints procedure, it's, it's not only unfair to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but it's a risk management um, overlook um, and organisations really need to close that loop. So, so, so that was that was an obvious thing. And and in addition to that, people sometimes thought they didn't have, you know, there was no support from leadership within their workplace. Um, so there's lots of ways that people can get a sense of whether their workplace is supportive. Um, sometimes it's through open, bold statements, um, but other times it's through more. I guess, more hidden or more subtle means. So people take their clues from the things that organisations find important, but certainly um, you, you absolutely, at the very least, need to name racism as something that your organisation won't tolerate as you, the same way that you would say sexual harassment is something you don't tolerate, and we know workplaces do that, or most of them do. Um, you also need to name this. I'm speaking with um, Elisa Anise. We're talking about uh, Gary Yellow, which is a, um, a report that means speak the truth in Wiradjuri. It's about racism in the workplace. Before I let you go, uh, Lisa, you've actually suggested, um, uh, we've actually recommended 10 things that uh, organisations can do to um, address some of these issues. Um, I'll just um, quickly chat to you about one. And it's uh, recommendation five, and that is recognise identity strain and educate non-Indigenous staff about how to interact with their Indigenous colleagues in ways that reduce this. Do you just want to briefly talk about the idea of identity strain? Yeah, it's a, a term we've coined with this research, and it's the idea that someone who's Indigenous in a workplace um, then becomes, if, they, if they're open about it, they then become the person that everyone goes to to get information on. They become mm-hmm. the person that gets asked to sit on every panel. They get photographed with the company brochure. Um, and then there's an expectation that they're going to educate everybody in the workplace. And whilst, you know, people, individuals might think that they're doing the right thing by going to someone who they think has lived experience, um, that person may not have signed up for that kind of responsibility. And they often do it without any extra pay, without any extra reward, even though they're sharing very precious cultural knowledge. And sometimes they have that knowledge and sometimes they may not, especially if they're from mm-hmm. the stolen generation. So we have to recognise that it's a thing and we have to do a couple of things. We have to compensate people properly for sharing their cultural knowledge Um, And then we have to respect when that is not something that they want to do. And then uh, everybody else has to grow up and go figure out how to do their own research and learn about things. There's no excuses anymore. There's plenty of books. There's plenty of... There's TED Talks. There's documentaries. You can actually learn a lot if you put the energy and the effort into it before you go and burden someone um, who is probably being burdened 50 times a day by various individuals. And I think that's something that we just need to recognise. You're making me break out into a cold sweat, Lisa, (laughs) as I think back on some of my previous experiences in workplaces. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Where can people go to um, to read Gary Ella and um, educate themselves on um, some of these matters that we've discussed here this evening? So they can go to our website, www.dca.org.au forward slash Gary Ella. 
Lisa, thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll have you back on the show some other time to talk about how things progress on this front. Thank you so much and thank you so much for the work that you do. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.